Well, good morning. It is July long weekend, which is also known as Youth Pastor Weekend. Um, These are the kind of weekends where they, you know, the lead pastor wants to go away or none of the other staff want to preach, so they get the youth pastor to, you know, the minor league preacher to come up and (laughs) preach the sermon. So uh, for those of you online looking at that camera right there, um, it is Communion Sunday, so if you need to pause the video and run to your fridge and figure out something to use for communion, then uh, please do that. We are going to be partaking in that together later. Let me pray as we dive into today's sermon. God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the worship this morning, for the way that uh, you've been preparing our hearts to hear from you. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is so freely given to us to study, to open up, to talk about, uh, to read, to meditate on, to pray over. And God, would you speak your words to us this morning, God. We thank you for how much you love us and you care for us. In your name, amen. Amen. When Melody and I started our infertility kind of journey uh, to become parents, we often, or we drove downtown to meet with a doctor, one of the top doctors in Canada, uh, in the IVF field. Uh, We showed her some tests that we had done. We talked about um, our marriage and our background and all of this stuff. And she didn't seem discouraged at all about how long it had, uh, we had been trying and it had it had taken us to get to this point. She genuinely seemed encouraged, uh, and she said that there was hope that this could work and that we could, in fact, be parents. There was no way that she could promise or guarantee us success, but she did give us hope. She also knew all the steps that it would take to ensure not only the best practices, but could ensure that the process would work specifically for us. And because the process for each couple is unique and different, we needed her, her, uh, her knowledge and her experience to help guide us. Now, the meeting didn't uh, end with her saying, okay, now go home, and one day, magically, a baby will appear. That's not how it works. If you're wondering, it's not how it works. We were required to buy into a process to follow every protocol and procedure with faith that indeed this could happen. I can look back now, and as I was looking at my son the other day, I thought about uh, all of the 6 a.m. drives to Vancouver, to 12th and Camby, um, going early enough that Mel could get blood work or ultrasounds before she had to get back to teach for school without her students or anybody else knowing what was happening. I can see the importance of all the needles and the shots and the pills that were prescribed. I can uh, appreciate the checks and balances that were instituted along the way because we had faith and hope that the doctor understood the end goal and trusted that she knew how to get us there. But the process was a partnership. The doctor could have given us all the information, all of her knowledge, all of her expertise, all the protocols, all of the steps, all of the hope, but there were things that we actually had to do, and by we, I mean mostly Melody, but I was there to support, and things that we were happy to do and happy to go through knowing that we had this end goal in mind. Now, God could have chosen to allow us to have a baby by natural means or by some other process without the help of doctors. But in our case, 
He used the knowledge and experience of a doctor to lead us on a path and guide our way. So today we are continuing in our series called The Minor Leagues, looking at books of the Bible from the minor prophets. And we find ourselves today in the book of Joel. So if you haven't uh, figured out that's where we're at this morning, you can open your Bibles there. As a reminder, the minor prophets are not minor in meaning or importance. The minor prophets carry the same spiritual, spirit-inspired weight as any of the other prophetic writings we find in the Bible. They are only categorized as minor because of how short these books were. And Joel is one of the shortest books in the Old Testament with just three chapters. Now, you can guess that the author of the book of Joel was Joel. But the Bible doesn't have a lot of information to give us about this man other than he was the son of Pethuel. Not, not much to go on there, just that. Most scholars are convinced that the book was written in and around 835 B.C. The evidence for this is actually interesting uh, because Joel doesn't talk about any reigning king or ruler at the time. After Judah's only ruling queen, Athaliah, I guess I could say it any way I want, it's not up there, so um, the ruling queen died around 835 B.C. Her grandson Joash would have been in line to take the throne, but since he was too young to take the throne, the priest Jedediah ruled in his place until he became old enough. So it makes sense that Joel didn't mention any official king or ruler. Joel is speaking to the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, Kyle did a great job last week talking about how um, you know, the, these two kingdoms had separated uh, Israel and Judah, and so Joel is speaking to the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom had been in a bit of a mess, uh, both economically and spiritually, leading up to Joel's writings. There were frequent raids by rival nations and cities, and then on top of that, in Joel 1, he talks about a locust plague and drought that had devastated um, Judah's economy. So in Joel 1, verse 4, it says, What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. So the locusts have eaten everything, okay? <laughs> Just put in all the locusts eating everything. Joel 1, 12. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, the apple tree, all of the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. Joel could see the nation of Judah had been weakened and needed, uh, was in great need of refocus. Many of the prophets in the Old Testament would come to the people uh, to get the people's attention when things were in disarray and, or when the people had turned their backs on God. In Joel, we don't see him addressing any specific sin or that Judah had specifically turned their back on God, but he knew that if they weren't careful, that they would fall into the same trap that many of their ancestors had fallen into. And so instead, he uses the present situation, this locust infestation, this, um, you know, the trees being done with making fruit, all of that stuff, to teach those in Judah about the Lord's message of judgment and the hope of recommitting their focus to God. Because as bad as Judah's present situation was, Joel was trying to show them that it was nothing in comparison to what would come from God if the people didn't repent and turn back to him. 
Probably the most evident and prominent point that Joel tries to make as you read through those three chapters is this prophetic word highlighting the idea of the day of the Lord. Joel 1.15, Alas, for that day, for the day of the Lord is near, it will come like destruction from the Almighty. Joel 2 verse 1, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. Joel 2.11, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Joel 2.31, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Joel 3.14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord, in its most simple terms, is, refers to a period of judgment brought about by God at the end times. The judgment either is in favor of those who have put their trust and faith in God, or or the judgment is in favor or against those who have chosen to reject God and go their own way. Joel's depiction contains some vivid descriptions and imagery which are meant to convey the seriousness of God's ultimate judgment on sin. God cannot in one breath be completely holy and then in another breath continue to allow sin to exist for all of eternity. At some point, enough is enough and judgment will be made. God could have chosen and often tried to get the attention of his people through other means. But much like the doctor and Melody Nye's story, prophets often played a key role in clarifying and articulating the message of God to the world. Often it came down to someone with a specific voice, called at a specific time, with a specific message. Someone who knew what direction the people needed to go. And someone who had the knowledge to give them the steps, to point them to the end goal, and put them on a path to get them there. Joel was not only pointing out... uh, pointing out the nation of Judah in its present circumstances, but also trying to give them a future focus and a glimpse of the end, which included the day of the Lord. The visions of the future can often seem separated to our day-to-day existence. The vivid prophetic writings should at least cause us to pause and think about our own spiritual status. And while these prophetic writings point to events in the future, I think we all need to be concerned with how we are living in the lead-up. Living in the lead-up. Let's be clear, the, the book of Joel is not all doom and gloom and judgment and wrath. God has always knit into his overarching story in the Bible the ability and the opportunity to find and have relationship with him. I just said a moment ago that God cannot in one breath be completely holy and in the other breath continue to allow sin to exist for all of eternity. And so he has to have a judgment. There has to be a day of reckoning. But before that, he wants to give everyone every opportunity to come to him for creation to be connected with the creator. 
And at the end of chapter 2 of this prophetic book in the Old Testament, we get a glimpse of something we often significantly associate with the New Testament. Joel 2, 28 to 29 says this, After this I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. Just because we are used to referencing the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, and specifically in Acts chapter 2, doesn't mean we, that he wasn't present and active in the Old Testament. Here's just a few examples of what the Holy Spirit was doing in the Old Testament. He was active in creation. He gives life to humanity and to other creatures. The Holy Spirit gave extraordinary power to certain judges, warriors, and prophets. He worked through Old Testament prophets, giving them, giving them uh, visions and words to give to the people. The, the Spirit inspired holiness in Old Testament believers and promised that someday God would put his Spirit in his people. Joel didn't know what would happen in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples and the believers and they started talking in other languages. When this happened, people started accusing the believers of being drunk. And it was Peter who gets up and actually quotes in Acts chapter 2 these very words from Joel chapter 2 in explaining that indeed this was the work of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't just tell us the ending and leave us hoping that we'll figure it out on our own. He promises us the Holy Spirit. But how often do you think about the Holy Spirit? How often do you think about it in your day-to-day -day life? Even before we get to the Holy Spirit showing up in full force in the book of Acts, Jesus has already prepared his disciples to be on the lookout. He says in John uh, 16, 7 to 11, it says this, Nevertheless, this is Jesus talking, Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit I, Jesus, go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, and you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I've always read this verse and focused on Jesus promising uh, promising the Holy Spirit to the disciples, but there is a line in there that I think holds some significant weight and importance. Jesus says, it is for your benefit that I go away. Or some translations say, it is to your advantage that I go away. There was a logical and predetermined reasons why Jesus had to leave his earthly ministry. One commentary puts it this way, the establishment of a worldwide religion with benefits of salvation from sin and eternal life for all humanity would have been impossible if the head of it had remained on earth, limited by earthly conditions, physically pre present at one place at a time, inaccessible unless approached through other men dependent upon human systems of communication, and is every contact with humanity subjected to monitoring and interpretation by human aids with their uh, inevitable stain of fallibility and bias." An earthly head of such a thing as true as the true church of Jesus Christ 
is an impossibility revealed by this verse. If the holy head of our blessed faith had himself remained on earth, there would have been no Holy Spirit to guide and comfort. But Jesus always is particular about his usage of words, and he says it's to our advantage or to our benefit. So what does he mean by that? At a foundational level, the fact that Jesus left and went doesn't mean that we no longer have access to him. We actually have a better opportunity to have a closer relationship and more access to Jesus through the work of the Spirit. If Jesus had remained on earth for all the amazing work, teaching, miracles, our access to any of that would have been relative to our physical proximity to him. But through the Spirit, we are given access to him at all times and in all places. Verse 7 talks about the Holy Spirit as the counselor. Some translations read counselor, comforter, companion, helper, advocate, and friend. This means that there is an expectancy on God's part that we would partner with him as we wait for those final days. Why would God go to all the trouble of sending his Holy Spirit described that way if we, didn't, if, he, if we didn't have the need and we didn't need help to live out our calling as followers of Christ? So maybe we need a reminder about the scope of the Spirit's resume. What is the role that he actually plays in our lives? We often talk about God the Father. You know, we sing that song, Good, good Father. I almost called you, but I didn't. Um, And we definitely talk about Jesus for good reason. The Holy Spirit is often referenced. I actually, one of my buddies called me this week. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm preparing a sermon. What are you preaching on? Joel. Oh, okay, cool. I'm like, oh, I'm going to weave the Holy Spirit in there. And he's like, what? And he's like, oh, wait, you're Alliance, not Baptist. You can talk about the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And this is one of the conversations I had the last couple weeks is I appreciate the fact that in the Alliance, we, we put weight on the Holy Spirit. Not something to just be glossed over. The Holy Spirit is often referenced, but I wonder if we understand the role and significance the third person of the Trinity can have and wants to have on our lives. The Holy Spirit is not an ethereal concept or a special essence or energy, but rather a very real part of the Trinity. The Trinity is the core of who God is. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. The work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world. God's intention was to have his Spirit available, present, and active in every believer's life. And many of the things that we experience and we take for granted are roles and responsibilities carried out each and every day by the Holy Spirit. So here we go. We're going to go through some roles of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent to indwell, to live in us. When someone gives their life to God and puts their faith in Jesus Christ, there is a transforming work that takes place. And one significant marker is that the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. He is literally breathing new life into our mortal bodies. Titus 3, verse 5, 
God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, an equal part of the Trinity who has limitless limitless power and wisdom, willingly comes to indwell those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. This means we have access to his amazing power, his presence, and his guidance. And the Spirit also works to mold and shape us more and more into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The more that we allow the Holy Spirit to have access and space to work in our lives, the more it will become evident uh, in our day-to-day lives. Galatians 5, to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. First and foremost, the Holy Spirit is sent to indwell, to live with us. The second, sent to guide us. One of the key roles that the Spirit plays is to guide not only uh, our physical actions, but also our heart and minds. As believers, we are defined by this guiding relationship. It is one of the markers that makes us distinct as children of God. Romans 8, 12 to 4, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For you, if, if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The guidance that comes from the Holy Spirit that is received by believers is reliable, dependable, and true. John sixteen thirteen. when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The work of the Holy Spirit is dependent on our partnership and our faith, because his presence will not always lead us to safe and comfortable spaces, but rather with intention of walking with us step by step wherever we are called. The Holy Spirit indwells us, guides us, teaches us. Our ability to understand the things of God is finite. As the Creator, God understands that there is only so much that we can interpret or understand without His help. And in this way, the Spirit is the one who acts as the motivator, interpreter, and teacher. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Because the Spirit is part of the Trinity, he already knows the very depths of God's goodness, his knowledge, and his intention with his creation. From, the, from this point, from the point where we put our faith in Jesus, our goal is to become more and more like Christ. And our reliance on the Spirit increases uh, the Spirit's ability to produce and teach and guide us tangibly and for that to outwork itself in our lives. The Holy Spirit is sent to empower the believer. 
The Holy Spirit is 100% focused on our inward transformation, but that transformation leads to an outward uh, reflection of the glory of God into our world. In this way, the Holy Spirit not only empowers the believer, but equips them for service. Acts 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. With that power comes gifts and abilities that are used for the building up of the church and bringing glory to God. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7, and verse 11. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of all of them. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but is the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. Now there are talents and abilities that people are born with, and there are talents and abilities that are learned and practiced, but God is able to use all of those abilities and give them a spiritual purpose as we point people to God. The last thing is that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Free will creates the obvious tension that we have in our lives where we desire and want what we want, and we also can desire what God wants as the designer and creator and what he's calling us to do. Because of sin, all creation is plagued with the inability to see the bigger picture. And sometimes that makes it difficult for us to choose the things of God rather than our selfish choices and tendencies. Even when the truth has been shown to us, we can justify uh, putting off the changes or the decisions we know we should make that would ultimately be to our benefit because we are not willing to let go of those things we still cling to so tightly. Galatians 5:17 The sinful nature wants to do evil which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants and the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature nature desires these two forces are constantly fighting each other so you are not free to carry out your good intentions the work of the holy spirit convicts us of our sin in our lives and reminds us of our deep need for god 1 Corinthians 2.14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. God longs for this relationship with his creation, but this means that the world needs to see um, their need for God. Everyone is held to God's standard despite the many who deny absolute truth. One article puts it this way, the influence of the Holy Spirit in an unsaved person's life will lead to the realization that they are guilty, that God is just, that all sinners are deserving of judgment. Once a sinner has been awakened to his soul's great need, the Spirit will point him to Christ, the one and only Savior and refuge from judgment. It is clear from the book of Joel that we are living in the lead up to the day of the Lord. The original intent of Joel's prophecies about the end times were to act as a wake-up call for the, the nation of Judah to become more aware and more attentive of what God was calling them to do. 
Not just that they would understand the future plans of God and understand the idea of the day of the Lord, but they would act in response, doing their part in building their relationship with him and pointing others towards him. But nothing about Joel's message would encourage them to just sit around and wait for this inevitable future event. Instead, Joel is saying that this future judgment should compel us to live out all that God has called us to do. Because even though the judgment is set, God longs for us to choose to have relationship with him and live in that relationship. So two things as we bring this to a close. Living in the lead up means to take advantage of the Holy Spirit. Being a new dad, I am uh, slowly becoming an expert in noises. The I want to cuddle noise, the fake cry noise, that's one of my favorites. I call them out on it all the time. Uh, The overtired cry, the really pure sad cry that he makes when he's sleeping sometimes. Just break your heart. Or the ever popular I'm hungry and you're daddy and you can't help me cry. The noises I am particularly interested in studying are his nighttime sounds. During the day, I can see him. I can see what he's doing. I can see if he's, you know, needing to spit up or if he's, you know, making a choking sound or if he's smiling. At night, he's supposed to be sleeping. (laughs) I'm supposed to be sleeping. Uh, So I am interested in those nighttime sounds. I have to become increasingly more discerning and more attentive in the way I listen to those. Was that... Was that just him yawning? Is that a burp situation brewing? Is that just a random loud coo in the middle of the night before he falls back asleep? Or are those the sounds of him possibly choking or needing to spit up? As a parent, I need to be listening and discerning. I need to be ready for action, but I can't hear him or react unless I'm in proximity of him. You need to take heart that if you have put your faith in God, then the Holy Spirit is living and active in your life. His proximity is near to you, and he will never run out of answers or guidance or provision. He knows everything about you. He knows all of your noises. He is attentive and discerning and acts out of love towards you. But how often do we listen for him? How often do we go for him? Do we know the Holy Spirit's noises in our own lives? Do we go to him? Do we listen to him? Do we talk to him? Do we lean on him? Or realize that he is right in the center of the situation or the decision that we find ourselves in? There is... No loss of power as we take advantage of the Holy Spirit. And so I write this specifically, that we should take advantage of the Holy Spirit, not save up to ask him for one big thing or wait till something's really difficult and then go to him. No, we should be taking advantage of this relationship each and every day. The second thing is live, live as if the end goal matters. Like our journey to become... Uh, new parents, I look back now and I can say that I didn't understand all of the science behind it. I didn't know all of the reasons. I didn't understand all the things that we were 
uh, ask it, being asked to do. I didn't even know how it would all work out in the end. But I am thankful that I lived my actions, decisions, thoughts, and prayers during those nine plus months. I'm thankful that I lived like the end goal mattered. This is what Joel is trying to convey, not only for the nation of Judah, but for you and I as well, that living in the light of the end is just as important as uh, our fate on the day of the Lord. Joel wants us to be able to look back on our lives and, and know that we did everything that we could to follow and honor God in the lead up to, him be, to being with him for eternity. And God isn't just waiting for us there. He has sent his Holy Spirit to lead and guide and direct and be with us as we focus on him and we focus on eternity. In the end, we can't do anything to save ourselves. But the fact that God saves us should make us want to do everything. In the end, we can't do anything to save ourselves, but the fact that God saves us should make us want to do everything. Let me pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you care for us so much that you would not only send your son to die on the cross for us, to rise again, to be seated with you, the Father, but then in your grace and mercy that you would send your Holy Spirit to live with us. That so many of the things that we, we either take for granted or, or, or you do in our lives are associated with the Holy Spirit, God. We thank you that as we move now into a time of communion, that we have a chance to respond. We have a chance to remember. We have a chance to be thankful. We have a chance to, to recenter as we move into a new week, God. We thank you for this morning, for the fact that we can sing your praises together, that we can open up your word, that we can hear from you. Now, God, would you be with us as we get to choose to respond to you in your name. Amen. I'm going to invite those that are serving communion to come and join me up front. Like I just prayed, this table is an invitation. It's an invitation for those that know God, that have had a relationship with him for a long time. It's an invitation for those of you that are here today that maybe don't know God, that don't have a relationship with him, that even now, in a few moments, I'll give you a chance that maybe you would want to respond and partake in this for the very first time. It's a table that requires reverence. It's a table that requires relationship. For us as believers, this moment that we do once a month is an opportunity to respond to the great love that God has for us and for the ultimate example of love that Jesus showed in his death on the cross. The reverence with which we take communion reflects the importance we place on our relationship with him.
It's also something that Jesus physically did on earth that we also get to partake in. Does the extraordinary love of God and his willingness to let his son die on a cross for you change your perspective, influence your actions, and overwhelm your thoughts? Taking the bread and the cup is an expression of the relationship that you have because of your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. A relationship that goes far beyond this moment, that the reverence and awe of communion would linger with us as a daily reminder of all that Jesus has done for us. God was smart. He knew that we would need a reminder. He knew that we would have to come back to this often. Some of you may be listening or watching or hearing all of this for the first time. Maybe you've never heard of Joel or the Minor Prophets, or maybe you've never heard someone speak from the Bible. Maybe you've come the last number of weeks hearing about Jesus, and maybe today is the day that you make a decision to follow him. Maybe you've been waiting for someone to ask you what you think about Jesus. Well, this is me asking you. Will you respond in reverence and accept this new relationship with Jesus? If you find yourself coming to this place today, that you believe the truth, just take this moment, bow your heads, confess this to Jesus. Repeat this wherever you're at. God, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you died for my sin and rose again to give me new life. And I desire that you would come into my life and take control. If you prayed that this morning, Take communion for the first time, but please come and talk to one of the elders or one of the staff. Let us know that you made that decision this morning. Response, reverence, and relationship. This is the table, not of the church, but of God. It is made ready for those who love God and who want to love God more. Those who are feeling close to God this morning and those who need to be more aware of his nearness and his presence. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little you who have been here often, and you who are here have not been here for a long time, take hold and partake in this tangible reminder of all that Jesus has given. For each of us who comes by faith, declaring Jesus as Lord of our lives, who longs for more of Jesus day by day and moment by moment, come, not because I invite you. It is God and it is God's will that you who want God should meet God here at the table. The bread and the cup. We're going to be taking both of them uh, together today. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 24 says this, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread represents Christ's body that was given for you and I. Jesus took that punishment uh, that you and I deserved and paid the price of sin that we could never pay. First Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You and I deserved death and worse. We deserved separation from God. But just like we talked about Throughout the sermon this morning, God places so much worth on your life that he not only sent Christ once and for all, 
that he might bring us to God, but he also sent his spirit to live with us. And the cup, 1 Corinthians 11, 25 to 26, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Ephesians 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Jesus' perfect sacrifice for our sin provided a way for us to find forgiveness. Today, those who believe by faith in the work of Jesus on the cross have been forgiven and are given new life in Christ. A life where we can not only approach God, but we can experience that relationship with him through the Holy Spirit. So that we could choose to have a relationship that permeates the moments in our days and experience the fullness of life only found in Jesus.